Hello, everybody. Welcome to the 68th episode of the Mannered Podcast. I'm your co-host, Roger Bodie, joined as always with my best friend and other co-host, Michael Hamilton. Michael, I did it. I wasn't the most toxic person in Flesh and Blood Twitter this week. I did it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm proud of you, buddy. I'm not number one. I'm not number one. Though I did see some shots fired at Matt folks on Twitter. That was this week. That was, that was, that wasn't toxic. That was all in good, good fun. Okay. Uh, This you isn't toxic, you know, you know. Okay. If if you say so. I, I DM'd him personally, if it makes you feel any better about it. And I was like, come on, man. Like, you can't say... Uh, my opponent should feel a sense of dread and sorrow when they see they're paired against me in gem fab tournaments, and I'm not a heel. Like, <laughs> like if you're gonna play a character that's a heel, it's fine. Like, you know, I I play it up. I'm a little bit hammy. I I'm uh, a heely at times. I own it. It's cool. It happens. But you know, you just can't you can't say I'm the nicest person in the world and then do an interview where you say you should be, yeah. Rue the day you were ever paired against Matt Falks. You know, you know those are those are just two different <laughs> things. That's all. I, I guess I, I would say there is a large gap between being the nicest person in the world and being a heel. There's a lot of like space in between those no, things. It's polarized. You're either <laughs> Michael Hamilton or a Matt Falks. There's no in between. Uh, well, anyway, so <laughs> there was... Uh, there was also a lot of drama on Twitter about um, the UK Nationals, which I feel like we said this last year. <laughs> there was some drama on Twitter about UK Nationals. I feel like that's every year since no. it started. Wait, maybe it wasn't last year. Was there Was there anything last year? It was the year before. Whenever Matt Folks won. I'm speaking of Matt Folks. That was two years ago. Yeah, that was, that was Briar and a tunic thing. And then Matt Folks was like, I think I'm going to get banned. And then he didn't get banned. And then here we are. He won a pro tour. Yeah. Um anyway, I uh I guess there was a large a, a, a lot of conversation around um a pummel not causing a discard basically where neither player kind of like acknowledged that the pummel on hit should cause a discard. Nothing was said. Um there was a judge sitting at the table, everything resolved correctly according to the rules and I think that like I know it feels bad to lose a game potentially to a missed trigger. I haven't seen the game actually. I don't know the, I, I know very well what happened because it was talked about so much, but I haven't watched the actual game, but in general, there's a recording of it. The judges, there's a judge watching it. And once it gets brought up, there's, you, you know, that like the judge community is going to take a look at it. See if they need to update their rules and policy based on what happened in the game. And just, in general, doing a witch hunt for a player is not not a good place to be. It's I, I think like I always say the Flesh and Blood community is the best gaming community I've ever been a part of. Um, I do think we go a little overboard with the Twitter witch hunts and just trust the judge community. That's what they're there for. They're going to investigate. They're going to see if there is any foul play. And they... If if there is any problem, then we'll we'll hear from them. We'll they'll make a post about it, talking about it. We know, like when the Matt Falks investigation happened two years ago, they were like, "Hey, there's not there's not a problem here." And when the uh, 
the Goliath gauntlet incident not that long ago. Um, the judging community talked about it. They, I don't know if they made a super public thing, but um, they they decided or ruled that there was no foul play, no intentional cheating, and I think that that that's what they're there for. That's that's their job. So, <laughs> yeah, I I think it's really important to just kind of let them do their thing. And if you don't have faith in the judge community, it's going to be hard to play the game competitively. What triggers do you allow your opponent to miss? Like, would you not discard to a pummel? Um, I think in the top four of nationals, if my opponent cast a pummel and I wrote down the damage and then they did not say anything and they drew their hand and I just, I, w- I would wait, but I, I would not, I would not, um, Personally, I would not say, "Hey, you you pummeled me. I need to discard here." I I would, I would do the same thing that Jamie did. Same in that situation. I did it. So I did it in the calling, um, or not the calling. It was in nationals. I don't know. It was one of the rounds. Somebody attacked me with a command and conquer. I said, "Okay." We worked down damage, and I looked at my opponent, and he said, "Trigger," and I was like, "There you go. Okay." And then I'll destroy my my arsenal. And he's like, well, "Do you not just have to do that automatically?" I was like, "No, it's your trigger. You have to acknowledge it because that was the rules that I had always been operating in. Like, it's your trigger. It's on you to announce it to tell me what to do." And um, that was my understanding of the rules. And I had like a small mini panic attack because like we had like so many different interpretations of the rules flying by based on what people are saying now, like versus like it's a mandatory trigger versus a may trigger versus this iteration of the rules policy says intentionally missing triggers is, is cheating and things like that. And uh, the spirit of those rules are intentionally missing like your own triggers. Like if you are, uh, have like a trigger that makes you lose life or something like that intentionally like, fe- like blood debt for example yeah like just being like levy and being like oh i forgot all my blood debt triggers oh uh, oops like that's that's cheating like that that's not a, that's not a thing you can do um and i think there's even some like rule room for like uh with briar v icelander like forgetting your embodiment so that way they can't stop you at the start of your turn like that could be considered cheating and things like that so those kinds of things, like you're oh, intentionally missing your own triggers is cheating, but there's no requirement in flesh and blood to acknowledge your opponent's uh, triggers. And uh, that's kind of for the betterment of the game, because let's say there was a requirement and you and your opponent both had to like remember everybody's triggers at all times or start getting game warnings. Um, let's say somebody's playing like a Riptide or Rhino or Vincent or, you know, in five years from now when there's just hundreds of effects like that create triggers. You now not only have to know what your deck's doing and everything like that, you are also now responsible for being an expert and knowing 100% of your opponent's triggers per the rules or else you're a cheater. And uh, I think that's kind of like the spirit in which why they don't force people to like know their opponent's triggers because there shouldn't be an expectation that you know what your opponent's cards do and that you're perfectly capable of playing your opponent's deck with them they should know what their own cards do you know yeah i i agree and i I think to add one more thing to that it would lead to so many cheating investigations every time a beneficial trigger is missed you would have to do a cheating investigation on the opponent to like try to verify that they forgot it too and that's like also that's hard to get right like in in my opinion, that is something that 
it would be asking a lot for the judge community to get right every time someone misses a trigger just like did your opponent know about it did they intentionally forget about it and i do think that the rules existing the way they do it does take away a lot of that potential for or a lot of a lot of the need for like a million cheating investigations over that which i think um i think it's pretty bad if something that happens in almost every game almost every game has a missed not almost every game a lot of games have missed beneficial triggers like a, a high high percentage of them reasonably more than like 10 percent of games and if that was the dead cheating investigation every time that's just like very demanding on the judge staff to make that happen yeah absolutely so i'm sure we're going to catch some heat for this considering the countervailing narrative or i think a lot of people were very much on the board of uh, they he should have discarded it to the pummel. Uh, it's scummy, not cool to miss your opponent's triggers. But like at the end of the day, um, it's a competitive card game. Like I, I, if we're playing in an armory, I'll discard it to the pummel a hundred percent of the time. That's fine because we're there to get better or fostering a friendly, casual environment where we're just trying to play the game. But when there's like real prizes online, like this could be life-changing money for some people, some contestants, like when you won $100,000, like that's like a lot to be said. And at the end of the day, if the rules say you're not responsible for remembering your opponent's triggers and it's a skill in and of itself to like make sure that you have the mental state to be like trigger, that you're not getting carried away with things. Like that's just another aspect of the game. And players should go into the games with those kinds of expectations at high-level competitive events. And I think a large degree of this was just kind of like a mismatching of people's expectations one way or another, whether people were just like, yeah, of course you shouldn't discard versus people just being like, yeah, of course you shouldn't discard if the opponent does it. Like, I think it was just like hard, like mismatch of like expectations. And um, hopefully we can just get more people on the same page. Yeah, and I will say in my nationals, I had a very similar thing happen where um, I don't know if it was like camera match against Bravo, but it was against the Bravo that they went Terra Sunder and hit me and or Terra Sunder and attack with their weapon. And I'm like tanking about what two cards to discard. And I'm trying to decide if I want to block with one card, then discard two or just discard two. And so I've got these two cards pulled to the side of my hand and my opponent goes, it, it has dominate. And I'm like, okay, I, I, I wasn't trying to block with the two cards. So eventually I'm like, okay, I'll take the damage. And then I didn't, I didn't immediately discard the two. I, I, I looked at them after I wrote down the updated damage and they're like, discard two. I'm like, cool, take the two cards I had pulled to the side, set in my discard pile. But I, I did wait for my opponent to say that. And if they didn't say that, um, I, I would, I would wait longer. And then, I, w- I would probably just go to my, or I would, I was planning to just go to my turn. I would maybe check with the judge because I knew there was an update to how trigger rules worked, but uh, I would definitely uh, call a judge over or go to my turn. I was not going to discard the two cards without being told to, I guess, because my opponent's trigger. Yeah. And I guess the last thing I'll say about that then is that doesn't mean that we should start encouraging people to be like, okay, you play Terra Sunder and at those write down damage, my turn. Like you can't like, no, don't do that. Yeah. That's that. You can't, that, that get, that's cheating. You, you should just sit there stoically like you would at any other point in time 
and just wait for your opponent to say something. You can't be like, you you shouldn't be rushing them. You shouldn't be like, oh, uh, damage. Can I check your graveyard? Damage. Oh, can I do this thing? Oh, damage. Look over there. You know, <laughs> you shouldn't be trying to, you shouldn't be actively trying to be getting your opponent to forget these triggers. Like there's two different, like, I feel like some of the conversations just spewed into like, oh, well, since you don't have to remind your opponent of triggers, you can now just trick them and shine a light in their eye and just, just do all kinds of really other scummy things now because you don't have to like, I feel like that's just taking things like a step too far because you're don't agree with what the current policy is. And that's fine. You don't have to agree with the current policy is, but attack the policy on its merits. Don't attack it for some kind of slippery slope argument of what could maybe possibly happen if you want to now start trying to actively cheat in the game like i get it no system's perfect and josh scott and everybody on the judging team acknowledge that there are faults in this system but at the end of the day it's what they think it will lead to the best results in competitive games and flesh and bloods and if they didn't think that that wouldn't be the policy so um like you said at the start start of this just have faith in the judging community that they have our best interests in mind when it comes to high level competitive flesh and blood and that if these issues start to arise they'll revisit it and i'm sure it won't be the policy anymore but uh as long as it's working as intended and it's not creating any major issues there probably isn't going to be a need to change it very well said okay Main topic. Everybody sucks now. Wait, what? <laughs> That's rude. Uh, so, Fatigue Briar was kind of interesting. It, um, and it kind of led to some questions about like what other Fatigue decks are going to start popping up um, as part of some questions in the Discord. And as Lexi and Icelander, kind of like these other high power level talented heroes that are capable of like pushing like really high amounts of damage um, start to rotate. Um, Michael and I just kind of do like a power level check to see like what decks are going to be kind of like looking at like uh, going forward and like what the future of the current roster of flesh and blood heroes looks like. And who knows, maybe some old heroes will come up and become new all-stars in this lower power level meta. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. I, I think... Are we jumping into heroes? Let's into go for heroes. It. Yeah. Okay. So I think, well, while we still have Lexi and Icelander, they're both very, very strong decks. I think Lexi reasonably stronger than Icelander, but Icelander is much less vulnerable to fatigue because the only way you can really fatigue an Icelander is by getting them to either block with their Frost Hexes or Warhorn them away, which is Warhorn's not a very good card. It's a big ass to include that in your deck, and it's a legendary, so you can only include one copy of it. Or I guess if the Rune Blades can play. Diabolic. Is it ultimatum? Yeah. Um, but yeah, Iceland are very hard to fatigue. Lexi, much less difficult to fatigue. Lexi is actually reasonably vulnerable to that strategy. Uh, sometimes. Uh, Lexi, I guess, like, the reason why she's hard to fatigue, though, is because her damage output it can be so high. It was obviously a lot higher when she had access to bullseye bracers to kind of like do the endless arrow kind of loops and things like that. It's, it's, it's lowered now, but um, Charles Dunn did an interview with Fino and he said um, basically like what he wants to do with like his fatigue decks, fatigue briar, fatigue old him back in the day was basically just 
almost just flip up the entire value of like you and your opponent's decks and say, well, my value, my t- the total damage you have to deal is like all my block value plus 40. And if your attacks don't add up to over that, I just win the game on the spot. And I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it. And it's something I've kind of always thought about like intuitively when playing against decks, like especially old time, where I always said, you can't just look at your hand and then play efficient four or five card hands like on like average turn cycles into fatigue strategies because like Charles said, uh, they're just too good at blocking and then you just aren't getting enough like chip damage in over the game to actually deal the 40 points of damage that you need. You need to be setting up turns that just overwhelm their defensive capabilities on like a single individual turn by taking like setup turns usually. Um, you know, Briar would do like Channel Mount Heroic or Lexi would try to pitch stack a very specific Rain Razor's three of a kind turn in the end game or um, Icelander infamously would just kind of go for this Frost X combo. There's decks that kind of, in order to defeat the fatigue strategies, you kind of have to be aware to like not just play your average hands as they present themselves, but you kind of have to start thinking in like, I need to start hitting ceilings in order to like actually like beat this deck. And if you're not hitting your ceilings, you're just not going to beat the fatigue decks. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think that's very true. And that's why part of why we see decks like Bravo that are like pseudo fatigue. They're usually not hard fatiguing the whole time. They're usually like trying to like fatigue is part of their tools, but they're also like if you take a setup turn in a Bravo and leave them with a four or a five card hand, you might just not even be able to do anything with your setup turn. You might just take a bunch of damage and one of his big dominated on hit effects will stop you from doing what you were trying to do with that setup turn yeah exactly and i guess that's kind of like what i'm concerned about it might be like an unintended consequence of the flattening of power level that we're kind of seeing right now that's kind of a pretty conscious design effort it looks like across the past few sets to just kind of like tone things down obviously not everything can be you know tales of aria and monarch we don't need just a million chains and starvos running around but i think it's kind of the symptom of having these kind of like untalented heroes mope around for so long now if you want to get these heroes you know eventually rotating into living legend they kind of had to mope up the format but it's kind of like with like low powered limited formats like um outsiders to a certain degree welcome to wraith when the power level of decks just can't produce the damage they need to to actually end games it just incentivizes fat decking and fatiguing right yeah definitely if basically if your cards are not worth significantly more or you can't get your cards to be worth much more than three you might as well just be blocking for three with your cards and swing a weapon because weapons traditionally have been pretty consistent a lot of weapons are able to trade or come in for four by pitching a card um we saw the guardians have always had their hammers that swing for four um this fatigue briar has grasp of the arc knight plus reaping blade to make a rune chan come in for four with the weapon off a single blue pitch so when your weapon comes in for four then and the average card in the format is getting three points of value then you can just pretty consistently threatened to fatigue by blocking three cards and swinging a weapon. Yeah, absolutely. And then we'll see things like Anathos being coming more of a powerhouse again, just because it's just such an efficient weapon. 
uh, Dawnblade, when we're already starting to see decks like uh, Fatigue, Dorinthia, Fatigue, Bolton, you know, start to peak up their heads a little bit now that the power level is starting to get a little, little lower. Um, you have things like the Great Axe, which is annoying for heroes to block and just presents like, you know, just one card, four damage, good rate on in and of itself. But also Dawnblade, very good weapon that you can combine with and start to try, like kind of threatens both like, if you want to start playing that build-up game plan, be more aggressive, it lets you do that. And at the end of the day, it's still just at its floor, one card three, one card four, if you're combining it with like Iron Song versus with that potential on hit. So there's a lot to be said about the rate of the warrior weapons at the moment. But at the end of the day, like they weren't able to fatigue before because their blocking for three or four just wasn't good enough to like absorb all the damage that was coming in at them, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think... Talk, jumping back to your Dorinthia thing, Easton Douglas did a really good Dorinthia duck tech on it. Um, that's kind of like where a lot of this Dorinthia talk that at least my my views on this Dorinthia talk came from where he was like, he he plays his Dawnblade. He's like, I am Agridori. I'm trying to race you. And then once you start committing too many of your reds to block out Dory, because if you don't block Dory, she's really scary. She can snowball out of control. Then he would just hard pivot to a fatigue, fatigue plan. Yeah, I really didn't understand how like Dorinthia was uh, like fatiguing people as well uh, until I played like a couple practice games with Dorinthia with builds similar to like Easton Douglas's list, and my opponent was just like, "Oh, I don't have a very good hand. It doesn't really do very much, but I'm scared of all your Dawnblade has like a counter and you have more reprise effects or something like that. Here's four cards." And it's like, "Oh, I just took four cards out of your deck for no <laughs> cards out of mine." Oh, I see. I like the fatigue because if you just do that two or three times across the course of the game, like that's 12 cards you've just spewed out of your deck for zero of mine, plus all the other times you're expected to block and also use your cards to attack. I kind of see how like the fatigue starts looking more and more real from there. Yeah, and that's how Oldheim, honestly, that's that's a lot of how Oldheim fatigued in most builds of Oldheim that were not... Um... That were not as as extreme as Charles Dunn's <laughs> Oldheim deck for Indianapolis. Uh, most Oldheim decks would be attacking with either Winner's Wall back in the day or like Spinal Crush, um, Choke Slam, Command and Conquers. And these cards Oak force your opponent to block. Yeah, Okanold too. But Okanold doesn't... Oh yeah, that would have damage. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> Forget I said that. But it does a bunch of damage. And then Endless your, Winner is a good one though. Yeah, yeah. Endless Winner is another good one. But when you'd attack with these cards, your opponent would basically be forced to block them or just take a bunch of damage and still not have a very good turn. So they might as well block them for life total reasons. But again, they block with too many important cards, then they can't, they just won't have enough damage left in their deck to kill you if you try to, or if you pivot to a more defensive fatigue track. Um, that was honestly, a lot of my Briar games did come pretty close to fatigue, but when I was playing old time back in the day, but that was most of the time I was blocking with three cards and swinging winners well over and over again. And if they just took the winners well, then they were at real threat of dying. And if they were blocking with real cards to block it out, then it means either way, their crackback is not as scary because they're either getting a frostbite or giving up cards and that's taking real cards out of their deck. And then you just kind of, eventually they run out of things to do. Yeah. And there's kind of two decks that I'm really eyeing right now. That's going to be looking to be the Queens of Mope town. I guess we can look to once to these elemental heroes finally rotate. I think there's just two heroes that I'm looking at as I look at this hero list that just pop off the page. It's just like, I don't really know what's going to be able to like beat these like very long game strategy of these heroes. Uh, first one, Dromai. 
you know, setting up the dragons, it's incredibly cumbersome to ask your opponent to like deal with this really go wide strategy, especially like as we see time and time again, dealing like setting up onboard permanents and asking your opponent to just also then spend resources cleaning them up in a longer game. Uh, like cards like Rake the Embers in particular just is just a phenomenal card for just pushing damage time and time and time again while asking your opponents to commit a lot of resources to cleaning up the board. Um, so I think Dromai, shockingly, might actually finally become a good hero. Queen number one in Moptown. What do you think about Dromai? Yeah, I, I think if the format does look like this kind of fatigue thing, like Dromai is the deck that if you're trying to fatigue, she's just going to set up 20 dragons and kill you. Um, Guardians kind of get a quote cheat a little bit or have like a lot of resilience to that because they have so many poppers. But even then, that matchup is really scary if you don't have some extra tech of go again attacks to make sure you're able to clear dragons or clear multiple dragons in a turn. So Dromai uh, looking really good if the format does kind of devolve or into ever a lot of people trying to fatigue each other yeah second queen which is timely especially with the tools that she gets in bright lights is going to be dash a pistol dash is just like like the pistol is just an incredibly efficient weapon in the longer the game goes it's just able to push that repeated sources of damage through no cards out of decks uh, so many block threes in that deck. You get to play out the defense reactions because you're not actually trying to like boost, so you don't care about having mono mechanologist cards in your deck. And just being able to play a deck with just like a million blues, just look to just block your opponent as best you can, play your defense reactions, and then just push this pistol damage turn after turn after turn after turn again. Um, that's why we saw you know dash being one of the one of the pistol dash being one of the best counters to like decks like old him and things like that or icelander even just because in the longer games the pistol value is just too much for them to handle yeah i i kind of push back against pistol dash being that good against icelander i think just like boost dash just crushed icelander (laughs) whereas pistol dash um a lot of the time you can set up your combo and pistol dash can't really do a lot with four card hands if they're if they're on the pistol plan and not the boost plan so depending on how fast they set up though because it's still a lot of pressure that well the if you're not pressuring boost dash meaningfully like that pistol that like if they're if you're just chill chilling as icelander and letting them (laughs) set up as well they can easily push nine damage a turn uh by just going three 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 with three pistol attacks so right right i'm saying like the first like few turns of the game before they really get set up then they they usually aren't able to spend full cards that or full hands that well that's fair okay Later in the game, once they have the item set up, you you are not chilling anymore. That's when you are you are well you you are chilling in a different way. You need to get your channels in play. You need to get your blizzards ready. You need to be threatening a lot of damage because you need to take those cards out of their hands. So they're not just pistoling you for nine nine off two cards or yeah, free nine damage a turn adds up pretty quickly. It turns out. Yeah. Um. But yeah, Dash has been really powerful because she can present these two strategies that are like so like fundamentally opposite of what each other are doing one is just like one of the most aggressive decks in the game just playing a bunch of stuff below or a bunch of stuff that is above right at the cost of spending your deck similar to chain that we saw in the past and the other option is you can play the super defensive deck with uh looking to maximize your pistol by playing these items that power up your pistol and when you spend your first turn of the game playing an item your second turn of the game playing an item and then your pistol is just online the whole game for being one of probably being the most efficient weapon in the game once you get these items set up. Uh, that's that's very powerful and completely polar opposite of what the first game plan is. 
Yeah, for sure. Do you think Reinar gets better into kind of like the mopey fatigue strategies if people are looking to block more? Or do you think the decks, I guess like Reinar could be a potential good counter to Dromai potentially with a, a lot of poppers in his deck as well. But I guess I'm... I'd, and I guess if you're Reinar, you get to play the item hate brute cards and then destroy all of Dash's item cards. Does that kind of put him as like a sleeper pick for the format? So theoretically, if Reinar is good, or if Reinar has the potential to be good, the metagame where people are looking to block a lot and they also have or and some of the decks have items, that is when Reinar would be a good choice, a good meta call. Because Intimidate is very good against these decks that just want to block you, especially if you can stack multiple Intimidates. Reinar can pitch stack some very scary hands and also has a very efficient weapon, either uh, 4 damage if you're playing the club or 3 damage if you're playing the claws. Usually, I would expect the claws if that's the plan because you're trying to Blood Rush Bellow, Claw, Claw, and a big thing, and that just pushes a bunch of damage and you get to Intimidate one or two cards, depending on what you do with the Blood Rush Bellow, but I think that in the world where decks are just trying to block a lot and are trying to do these kind of fatigue things, Reinar is solid. The problem is he still just struggles to hit rate a lot of the time or go above rate. So like if these fatigue decks have a decent amount of defense reactions, they can park a defense reaction in Arsenal and be less vulnerable to intimidate taking your whole hand or taking most of your hand and then if they have cards that can offensively use their card like we talked about the aggressive dorinthia that pivots to fatigue then if reiner intimidates your hand but you're able to just spend your four cards on offense then like the intimidate doesn't matter that much that's fair or the fatigue deck start playing the other best card in the whole game enchanting melody then then the intimidate doesn't matter either okay i see okay uh, I don't. I don't think. I yeah, don't yeah. think enchanting you, you, you can't. Said. Yeah, Reinar can't beat enchanting melody fatigue. I forgot about that. Okay. I, I will say, uh, another couple of decks that I think look pretty good in a fatigue heavy field are the two ninjas. I think, um, Katsu with his Kadachis, when Krasnoski's gone and Rampart's gone, it's really hard to efficiently well, block out. The it's, it's, sure, sure, sure. It, it's, it's it's there. But it's, it's hard. It. It's hard to utilize mm-hmm. without Krasnoski. So Katsu is in an interesting spot where he has a lot of tools to fight fatigue. We saw the uh, Mugenshi release line where you could like time snap that even if they block things out, you still get to shuffle a bunch of cards back in. Um, we also He also has Kadachis that just like chip in. If you're spending a, real, a full card to block a Kadachi every turn, you're not going to fatigue Katsu. You're just going to die. So um, Katsu is in a solid spot. And then Fi is... We talked about four cards or four damage for not spending a card from deck being pretty good. Fi can kind of consistently do five in, in uh, a late game cycle where you spend two blues to uh, you get back a Phoenix Flame on your opponent's turn with a blue pitch, and then you go Phoenix Flame, pitch the second blue, swing with Ember Blade, and then Fi back the second Phoenix Flame to attack for one plus one from the Shuko. So five, five damage with no cards spent from deck. And then Fi is also capable of doing a lot of damage and the best or it's five plays pretty reasonably above rate if you're not disrupting him at all so if you're just like trying to fatigue by blocking out you are going to have a really tough time against five yeah 
I think interestingly though, between these ninjas and then Dromai, it's still not looking good for our girl Prism in this kind of meta, huh? With lots of go wide, even in the fatigue strategies. Like it's still it's still looking like we're quite a ways away from it being new Prism's time to shine, huh? Yeah, ad- admittedly, I have not put very much time into New Prism. I think that she just doesn't feel very good. And I think, like, Dromai is going to be a popular choice at these tournaments. People love Dromai. Dromai is really cool. And Dromai is actually, like, not the best deck in the format, but a very solid choice. And because of that, and because of how hard it seems like it should be, or it would be to win a game, or how hard it is to win a game if your opponent casts Rake the Embers, I just... I don't want I don't want to be a prism gamer. Yeah, that's fair. Poor prism. I guess if we look at the other like hero. I was kind of thinking about Bolton for a second and I was like maybe Bolton starts to look more appealing too. Um he definitely yeah. has some pretty high ceilings. Yeah, I think Bolton has high ceilings and if these quote unquote blocking fatigue decks are trying to block with a lot of attack actions, like that's when if, if their blocking cards are attack actions, that's when Bolton looks very good because you are just turning on your, your hero power every time your opponent blocks an attack action, just getting plus one. And then like suddenly your hero that um, usually can play around rate, maybe a little bit above rate, but not as not as far as the other aggro decks. If your hero power is turned on one or two, two of your attacks every turn, then you're like way above rate. Two extra damage every turn is a lot. Yeah, the problem is the decks we were talking about is Dorinthia, no attacks there to turn it on. Dromai, no attacks really to turn it on. And then Dash. Dash has always been pretty historically unfavored into Bolton, so that's good for him. Yeah. One other thing to note is um, the Sabres combo is also very good into decks that are looking to hard fatigue you. You can set up pretty big turns, especially with Spirit and V and the... Gosh, what's the card called? The one that doesn't see play very often that puts a plus one counter when you attack with a weapon. Um, oh, Oath, Oath of Steel? Yeah, Oath of Steel. If you combine Oath of Steel with Lumina Ascensions, it's pretty easy to uh, go reasonably above what a Fatigue deck can block out. Yeah, I think having a combo package would make sense. I don't think you still want it to be your entire game plan because the next deck I'm going to talk about, which is the Assassins, I think they're pretty hard to play into Dromai. So I think Dromai is going to be a pretty big limiting factor on them as well. As But... Short of Dromai, the Assassins look okay, especially like if the games are going long, the grindy hitting with one or two contract cards could be the difference between winning and losing, just kind of banishing the extra cards out of your opponent's deck. So maybe we see that keyword kind of mattering again, as well as like just the kind of natural inefficiencies that come up when trying to block um Uzuri's attacks kind of like Dorinthia's where your opponent's not putting like four cards in front of it for no reason but when your opponent puts two cards in front of a zero over three like you're just like okay cool like I, I'm winning this exchange on like card rate yeah and you I guess the the biggest argument against being able to fatigue with assassins is that your your weapons are so bad the spiders bite the mm-hmm. other spiders bite off brands with different <laughs> shrinking effects <laughs> they're all they're all not very good for fatiguing. They're two resources for one damage, which is pretty pretty mopey. But at least they do have a weapon, and then the the contract effects do do a good job at pressuring your opponent's deck. Let me see if I can get this one: Spider's Bite for attacks, or Bido Class for non-attacks, 
nerve scalpel for reactions and scale peeler for armor. Are those the four? Those are definitely the four daggers. I could not tell you which one does what. <laughs> I know those are. I, I'm just making sure there aren't any more. I know that's the effects. Scale peeler peels the scales okay. for armor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nerve scalpel. I just, I just reactions. I don't know. Uh, Orbitoclast is the crazy trippy red and blue because it's so good against those non-attack action sorcery spells. Ooh, and then spider spike. Yeah. Um. You said assassins plural. Do you think there's any way that you would play Arach- Arachne over? I mean, he makes contract card or they make contract cards a little better, right? You get that. You get to make. You get to anti pitch stack your opponent, ruin their pitch stack that they're setting up for their fatigue strategy. You know, that's hmm. a that's a thing that is probably exists somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, I am very skeptical on playing Arachne over Azuri right now. I think if Arachne gets a couple of good specializations in this new uh, expansion slot in the next set, then I'm I'm interested. Again. But for now, with their only uh, their only specialization being Regicide, I think their ability is so much weaker than Uzuri's that you probably shouldn't be playing. Poor them. Arachne. Like I was like I, I was going to bring up the specialization thing too. It's just like they get one specialization and it's legendary they have no other like unique cards that they get to play or like specializations they have one unique niche specialization come on come on come on we can't get we can't give arachne anything else around here no more specializations we're, we're doing we're doing arachne a little dirty here with this with this card pool yeah i I'm sure they'll get help at some point. The question is just when when will that be? Yeah. Speaking of help, Riptide still sucks, right? <laughs> um probably. <laughs> Old Hive's gone. That that was his worst matchup. Ice Center's still around, the deck's very hard to beat with Riptide. And I think I think you're okay. You can build the deck to be okay and a lot of the other Top heroes. Well, sorry. What a ringing endorsement. I think you could be okay. Um, Dromai is also very <laughs> tough. So Dromai being bad, Iceliner being bad. Uh, those are the two biggest reasons that I think Riptide is probably still not great. But Old Time leaving was a big boon. Unfortunately, he also lost Bullseye Bracer, which was something that he cared about too. Um, I think, I think there is a, a meta that you can play Riptide in, but. Um, if Icelander and Dromai are popular, it's going to be tough. What about the remaining Runeblades? Let's talk about them last. So, well, we're not even going to talk about Levia. Oh, we can talk about <laughs> Levia too. Sure, we could. Uh, I forgot Levia. Runeblades, but yeah, and I guess we didn't touch on Azalea either. But we'll talk about all these heroes. So, Runeblades, go. Runeblades, um, Viserai, I think, kind of sucks right now. I think with Rosetta Thorn. He was okay, but he's so vulnerable to Warmonger's diplomacy that it's probably just not correct to be playing Viserai. What about Pummel and, Viserai? Can I interest you in putting some Pummels? So you, you didn't like Belittle Minoism Viserai, right? Because it's like kind of high variance. Um, oh, yeah. Well, yeah. And they're generics. Um, I think Pummel Viserai is significantly worse than Belittle Minoism Viserai. I think you're you're doing the same thing where you're like diluting your deck and making it less consistent but you're not getting as big of a power spike as you get from including belittle, belittle minimalism in your deck. I'm not saying it's horrible. 
And maybe maybe Pummel Viscerai is the best way to play Viscerai right now, but I am very skeptical of it being good or being remotely consistent. What about Arknight Ascendancy, Pummel Viscerai? Then you get to Pummel your Dominate Arknight Ascendancy, trigger all those rune chants, and then the Pummel damage makes even more rune chants. Huh? Huh? So uh, I'm going to need a reminder on what Arknight Ascendancy does. It's when it hits, you create rune chance equal to the damage dealt. Yeah. And it's, it's like five costs for five power. Uh, and has Dominate. And it has the uh, the birthday cake text that it costs one less for each rune chance, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the the trick is you get five rune chance and you play it for zero. And then you have, and hopefully you're pumping it up with like Runic Reckoning and Pummel. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, hmm? I mean, there could be something there. I am, again, I doesn't sound remotely consistent to me. And, <laughs> and I'm not sure the power level is there to make up for the inconsistencies. Yeah. But I, you know, it's not hopeless. They, Runic, oh gosh, what is this card called? Runic Reckoning. The new pump that I got, I think, does do a lot for that kind of strategy where it's a zero for three that hits any of your Runeblade cards, and your deck's going to be all Runeblade attacks. Um, it blocks for three, so if you're not going off, you can just block with it where you're setting up to do your thing. I, again, don't... I I have my suspicions, but it could be a thing. What about, um, like, uh, maybe we can do an OTK thing. What's this? Where's this? Uh, what does the book do? The Anals? Maybe we'd play Anal Viscerai. <sighs> Uh, I'm not a believer in the book. You're spending. not a believer. You're not a believer in anal. So I, I do think that you can't play, you can't play the old version of Israi because lose like Mav into Shrill into Rosetta Thorn, um, was good. Doing that with a different weapon is giving up a full damage on all of those turns, and Israi wasn't good enough with that plan before, and I don't think that'll change when his weapon gets worse. All his other stuff, I haven't explored enough. I don't, like, I'm. if, if y'all want to go explore this stuff, great, do it, have a good time. I'm probably going to spend my time exploring some other things, like Vincent, who actually, um, I don't know if is fully solved and might be good. There's still a lot of exploration to do there. That's fair. Yeah, Vincent seems interesting. Um, pushing that guaranteed arcane damage could be a way to help, you know, hedge your best against fatigue. Uh, you don't have the chain issue where like, you're just going to mill out your deck. Um, and if the format's slower, her vulnerability to like falling behind kind of gets mitigated a little bit. It was just like a slower format. So she does some very, 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 very powerful cards and effects. Um, so yeah, it's, um, she's just, like you said, kind of a question mark in my mind still. Yeah, and I think like it's still one of the most above rate things to block with three cards for nine or ten and then send a one card rune gate attack for like six with an on hit or something. That's you're getting like 16, 17 points of value out of your hand, assuming that you can turn on that rune gate in some other way. So if you have a good way to turn on rune gate, I think Vincent or if you're if you're able to figure out how to consistently turn on rune gate, I think Vincent that's very good i also think you need to solve the problem of what happens if my opponent's just blocking and they give me a five card hand um, i think that's another problem Vince i can run into so Fair. i think if, if you can if you can if you can put it all together in one cohesive package i still think that hero has some some very good tools speaking of consistency 
Levia. You want to talk about Levia? Yeah. Um, so I think Levia is worse than I thought she was. I think <laughs> <laughs> clearly. <laughs> You didn't. You didn't was, win nationals with Levia. That that's not, not what happened. Not this time. Not I, had a, this time. I, I basically had like a COVID fever dream where I can't remember what's real and what's not anymore. You didn't. No, I played Lexia Nationals, who I still think is the best deck and probably will be if she doesn't get touched in this ban restricted announcement. Assuming she doesn't make Living Legend status, I don't think she's capable. I don't think of she that. can. If we have, it's so, after Pro Quest season. I think the, the the meta is going to be Lexi and decks that are good against Lexi, like this Fatigue Briar that lined up pretty well against Lexi. But Fatigue Briar is gone, so there's it's going to be Lexi sure. and then Lexi and then uh, Lexi and then <laughs> I can't think of uh, the last one here. Uh, Lexi, that's right. Okay. So I do think I do think Bravo has some game into Lexi. I think that matchup isn't horrendous. I think that. Dromai had more game into Droma or more game into Lexi before Hornets thing was around that kind of makes the Ashwing plan a lot worse. Um I think you can still tumble tie new horizons, have a good time. <laughs> if uh if that's your your cup of tea. Um I I don't know. I don't know what else is good against Lexi. I <laughs> So well, that's, that's why that's, that's future problem, right? We, we're talking about yeah. future, future problems of how yeah. dominant Levy is going to be in the format. Go. Levy is going to so, take over the format, be the best deck. So I think Levy's biggest issue is that if you transform into Blasma Fett, you're extremely vulnerable to getting fatigued. Um, I think that the hero still is doing some pretty strong things where some of your turns can be reasonably above rate, uh, especially on the back of Scabskin Leathers, which is still the most high-variance card of the game, I think, where you're just Not like... Not when you're Roger Craps winning <laughs> dice-rolling Master Boating. <laughs> um, I think that the play pattern of your opponent just blocking out against Levia, and then you looking at your hand being like, well, the only way to spend three or more of these five cards is if I roll Scabskins. I have to roll Scabskins here. You roll the Scabskins... And then they're like, well, you hit a six. I guess I'll block with my whole hand, leak four damage, and try again next turn. <laughs> Hope you have to miss on Scabskin next turn. And that strategy um, doesn't beat Levia all the time. A lot of the time, your opponent rolls well enough that they kill you. Sometimes they can even afford to roll 1-1 one, one if you're doing this for a while, especially if the blood that's pretty low at the time. But on top of having the Scabskin's variance, you can also just like hit a hand that doesn't turn off blood debt. Um, you only get five cards with every hand. Sometimes your five cards don't turn off blood debt. I think that... The hero is doing some very powerful things. It's just not super consistent. It is hard to f imagine building a Levia deck that is quite consistent. Um, you can build it so that when your inconsistencies hit, like when you don't turn off blood debt, you take less damage. You can build it in a way to like try to maximize your ability to use four and five card hands without rolling scabskin. So you can try to be hedged against that. You can play gambler glo gambler's gloves, which also helps. But ultimately, the hero is fairly high variance and on top of that just having a pretty poor lexi matchup where lexi just is more disruptive and does more damage than you is a pretty strong disincentivize it's pretty good at disincentivizing playing levia right now i also think the ice center matchup is still really tough where ice center is doing things that are pretty good rate she's good at blocking and sometimes in the late game you're gonna have eight blood debt and she's gonna fuse an aether ice vein with two insidious chills and you're not gonna be able to turn off blood debt too bad so I think once the ice heroes are gone, 
there's less disruption, especially disruption that's not in the form of attacking, which Levy is actually pretty good against attack-based disruption. She has very good blocking equipment and a lot of her brute cards block three, just not the ones that block zero. Those ones, has it say all block either three or zero? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what about Azalea? Sure, she just so, not think as warmongers. No, I think I think Azalea is good. I think that I think Warmongers is very good against her. I think that Azalea outside of Warmongers, the hero is quite good. And other than losing Bullseye Bracer and Warmongers being printed, not a lot has changed since Azalea was being like a real menace back when she first got Codex of Frailty. So, and and all the new pumps and on hits. So. Uh, also, Oldheim leaving was probably her worst matchup, so that helps too. I, I think, think Bravo would still be quite bad. I yeah, think Dromai is also quite bad. I think the Bravo matchup's tough. I think the Dromai matchup is also not great. It's probably reasonably worse after losing Bullseye Bracer. Um, but I don't think Azalea is hopeless. I think she's still quite good against Icelander, and the hero is just doing some very, very powerful things. So if, if, if the format lines up correctly for Azalea, um, she's pretty able, she's pretty consistently able to get like 14 plus value out of her four cards, even before counting for the on hits because of death dealers draw a card every turn. And then the on hits just are worth a lot more or make that worth a lot more. Here's the real question. Here's the real hard hitting. We're wrapping things up. Real question. Does this sound fun to you? Does what sound fun to me? This this hypothetical like low powered format. Does this sound like it's going to be fun? Um, I think it would be a lot more fun if Lexi wasn't in the picture because I think we're saying we're saying once Lexi's rotating. Oh, once like Lexi's Lexi, rotating. Yeah, yeah. This Lexi-less fatigue, Dromai, Durinthia, Dash, Best Decks. Does that format sound good to you? Well, I think. It's interesting because, like I said, the ninjas are going to come out and punish the fatigue decks. Both ninjas should be pretty good against fatigue when the fatigue decks aren't having Earth React and Crown and stuff. I think Dromai also is quite good at punishing fatigue, and Dromai has a pretty bad ninja matchup as well. Um, at least traditionally has had a pretty bad ninja matchup. I'm not 100% sure that that's still the case, but I think that. I, I'm just very ready to see Lexi go. I, I want to explore a format without Lexi's like That's uh, power on it. I think Icelander, I, I'm going to be sad when she living legends, but she's also very close. And I think she does do a lot of, at least when Icelander is one of the better decks, it does make a lot of heroes much less viable because they struggle into Icelander. I am a little bit worried about a format with no ice at all, but because I think the aggro decks should be pretty strong when they don't have to worry about ice disruption. But we'll we'll see because it sounds like a lot of the the hard hitters are not the aggro decks that we're worried about in the next format. So I I'm looking forward to Lexi leaving. I think that there is a lot of room to explore. I think the format will be very open and yeah, seems like a good spot to be. I uh, I, I guess I'm not just super excited about a mopey format. I guess like there's nothing that's popping off the page that seems amazing. Maybe I maybe I I'll change my tune if I'm like starting to win games consistently with Bolton. Maybe then then I'll be a happy camper if he's finally good. But I think more importantly, James White just did an interview with uh, Flake over at Instant Speed, and uh, it was a really good interview. Lots of really informative things came through with it. 
I think the biggest thing that I was most excited about after after out of all the things in the conversation was he said that they want to speed up the living legend process and start rotating in heroes a little bit faster. And I think that will go a long way in helping metagames feel more fresh, active, and dynamic because, you know, we still have every single Welcome to Wraith and Arcane Rising hero legal at the moment. Like, all eight of those original heroes have been around now for the four years that flesh and blood has, has, has existed. And they're like sort of close. Some of them maybe to kind of living legend. I think Dash is the highest one um, because it won a couple callings, but like that's it, you know? And I think the sooner we can kind of get the old mope guard kind of swept out of here, <laughs> the more we can start having more fun and engaging dynamic heroes kind of come and enter in the mix. But I think we're kind of feeling the effects of them going back and introducing the lower power level heroes in those first couple sets to introduce the world to the game. You know, maybe that wasn't necessary, maybe it was, but then coming in with the monarch and aria heroes after that like it's just clear that talented heroes are just far and away better than the untalented heroes and it's just kind of been creating this lopsided metagame where it's just like talented heroes are were cool and interesting when they first came out and now it's just like okay now they're just the best thing to be doing and we have all these mopey heroes down here it's kind of led to this polarized metagame for what feels like two years now yeah i i don't know if i would completely agree with that i think like the tales of aria talented heroes were all like really really good and recently better than non-talented heroes but if you even look at monarch like there's re- arguments to play dorinthia over bull and there's arguments to play Rhaenar over levia even even though levia and bull both just got like pretty big supplemental or sure. pre- like chain and prism i guess the yeah so, hero, so i don't know if the issue is inherently talents versus like when you give the talented heroes better abilities and a bigger card pool, then they're just going to be better than the the non-talented heroes. Like if you look at Chain's ability and compare it to Viscerize, well, Viscerize's ability is actually pretty good, but <laughs> Chain's ability was broken. Um, if you look at Prism's ability and compare it to anyone, well, Prism's ability wasn't very good, but her weapon was the best weapon in the game. Yeah. So, and Briar's <laughs> originally build ability yeah. was broken. So Bri- Briar's ability, very good. Lex's ability also very, very good. And then... Um, Oldheim, I think his ability is probably the weakest of the three Tales of Aria heroes, but he also had Crown of Seeds and Salagmai and a huge card pool and Winner's Whale. So, yeah, all good cards. Well, I guess we'll see. But uh, I guess that's just kind of my, my thoughts. I just want to see kind of things go a little bit faster. So now that James White said that that's looking like it's going to be the case on the horizon, I'm excited for it be really cool to see some some points assigned to heroes other than first place at some of these bigger events (laughs) 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 it's the covid coming back (laughs) (laughs) not hinting at more living legend points being assigned (laughs) yeah but we'll see i i am still very excited for bright lights we didn't talk about limited all in this episode but i'm i'm really excited to see what limited looks like there and 
hopefully the CC format's pretty good. Hopefully Lexi gets oh, I forgot. What's up? Teclavosin. We gotta rate Teclavosin. How do you think his ability to play Evos um as a once per turn instant is gonna play? Do you think that's gonna be a powerful Evo ability? Do you think it's gonna cause a lot of evolution to the format? Um, I think the instant speed doesn't matter so much as to playing them from Banish. I mean, the instant speed is upside, but playing them from Banish is quite strong. You're just adding cards to your hand. Basically, you're just getting an extra card every time you do that. So I do think it really depends a lot on how good the Evos stuff is. Like competing with Tunic and Teclo Foundry Heart and Crown of Providence and some of these very good equipment is going to be pretty tough. So if the Evo stuff just doesn't end up like it needs to be good enough to warrant jumping through these hoops to get it, choosing this hero instead of one of the other mechanologists um, that gets some other benefit. Um, so I think he's, he's up, he's, he's in a tough spot to start where the current equipment you get access to is very, very good. But I think if these cards are good enough, then the hero is pretty cool and could be pretty powerful. That's fair. I guess we'll see. And there's even a third mystery hero, and who knows what that guy's going to do, or girl, or them, or whatever it is. It could be a robot. I don't know. Is it confirmed that we're getting the same dash that we have already? We're not I getting like know. a Starvo dash? I think we're getting a new one, but I, I think so. I think we're getting a new dash. Okay, so we don't know what... We only know what one of the, the heroes from that set does, so we'll yeah, see. We don't even know what that does, the thing that it does, does. Yeah, we, we, we know the text, the ability, but we don't know how it interacts with specific cards because what the cards that exist in the format are matters so much for how good that ability is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, the next time you're figuring out what the cards in the deck do, always remember, mind your manners. Mind your manners.